0: We have a glorious future. And uh, I was in my quiet time this morning. I was in the scripture and praying, and uh, I felt like God put something on my heart, and I thought, ah, maybe not. And uh, then I read it again here this morning during Sunday school. And it was a quote from Psalm 95. It's reiterated in Hebrews 3, and it says, "Uh, today is the day of salvation. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So I would just say to anybody here this morning who's contemplating eternity or their future, God's been speaking to you and you're putting it off, don't put it off another day. Uh, Eternity is in the balance for all of us, friends. Eternity, heaven or hell. And when we open in these services and we're worshiping together, that's a little bit, it's a foretaste of the glories that are ours in Christ's presence with the saints and the angels. It's like, it's a hint of what's to come. So I would just exhort you, encourage you, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Commit yourself to Christ. Kathy and I knew a man years ago. It was, uh, we were still new Christians. We were at the first church we attended here in Topeka. And he was a nice guy. He'd come to faith a little later in life, in uh, the 30s or 40s. And if you met him or interacted with him, uh, even-keeled, thoughtful, willing to help, you know, all the good things you want. And I noticed when he got into his car one time after service, his vanity plate said, Wretch, W-R-E-T-C-H, Wretch, like I'm a wretched person. So I asked him about, you know, what's the deal, you know, with your license plate, And he said, well, when he came to faith, he just felt like such a wretch. And I I knew there was a story behind that, and I never knew what it was. You know, I never knew what the particulars, but the way he said it, it, was like, I get it. There's a lot behind that. I didn't know what it was, but I didn't need to know his story to be able to appreciate his sentiment. Because I knew myself. And I had my own history, and my own sin, and my own shame. You know, if you read uh, John Newton's biography, you get a sense of why he wrote those words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But if you don't read his biography, if you don't know a thing about it, you can still, when you hear that phrase in that probably best known Christian hymn, I think, in the world, you still don't need to know John Newton's story to have a sense of God saved a wretch like me. I know enough of what he's communicating without knowing his backstory to say I get it. I can I can identify with that sentiment, those words, that history. You know, when we're in the Psalms, as we'll be here this morning, I think one of the reasons why they are the Psalm, the book of Psalms, is for many people their favorite or their go-to place in the Bible. It's because it covers every experience in life you can have. You know, if you're lonely, it speaks to loneliness. If you're angry, it speaks to anger. If you feel isolated, whatever it is, whatever human emotion, challenge, up or down, it's all reflected in the Psalms. And a lot of times, we don't know the backstory on those songs, but as we read them, we can identify with what's being communicated. I think that's the sense this morning we're going to be in Psalm 6. We're in the series, Like a Tree, through the Psalms. We've done the introduction, Psalms 1 and 2, and and guys, I don't cover every psalm, I won't have time, but in this one, Book 1, Psalms 1 through 41, I think I've got 17 uh, lessons in this. So this morning, we're skipping from 2 right up to Psalm 6, that's where we'll be planted this morning, and I would also say this, if the psalms are on your mind There have been many lessons, there's been at least one series here on the psalms, individual psalms or a collection of psalms. If you go to the church website, you can look up sermons, you can click scripture, and it'll take you to all the messages that have been preached out of the psalms. Open your Bible or open your app, whatever you guys are using there this morning. Psalm 6 is actually listed as a couple different kinds of psalms. So there's a variety of songs. We sort of categorize them as to how they're speaking or what they're meant to affect. On one hand, Psalm 6 is called a penitential psalm. Although David doesn't go into any detail at all, he infers that he has sinned. And it's his sin that has elicited the challenges he's facing. So there's this sense of, I'm sorry, I have repentance or sorrow over my sin. That's part of this song. The other is it's a lament. So you guys know as you read throughout Psalms, you get these songs where it's just this profusion of calling out to God, I am suffering, I'm being hammered, I'm isolated, I'm oppressed, whatever it is, and I'm lamenting to God and I'm asking for God to enter in and help me in my troubles. This is both of those. This psalm breaks down easily. The first part is verses 1 through 7. David calls out to God, tells a little bit about what his situation is like, what it feels like. The second part is verses 8 through 10. And he has, he has looked towards heaven on the first half of the song. And then he turns towards his enemies or his foes in the last three verses. So first to heaven and then to those around him. We don't know what the setting on this is. You know, if you read Psalm 51, the backstory is in 2 Samuel. So when you read Psalm 51, you know exactly what was going on. And that's another, uh, that's another penitential Song where David says, I've sinned, and we read about what that looked like in the narrative. This one, we don't have a narrative. We don't know exactly what was going on that elicited this one. We know it's attributed to David. That's about all we know. If you look there in your text under Psalm 6, it starts by saying to the choir master, this is the heading, or to the chief musician, guys, as is the norm throughout this book, there's a lot either by way of introduction like here sometimes phrases through the songs that we don't know what it means. Say, "Law," that we're, we're guessing, that there's, a, there's a number of terms that are used that would have made sense, especially probably to the musicians that were a part of this. This one says to the choir master, I think NASB says to the chief musician. We sort of assume that's probably the Levite who was heading up the worship of God that David would have been a part of, but it might mean to God himself, the chief musician. Any Tolkien fans in here? Uh, If you've read The Lord of the Rings, you know, that sort of came for Tolkien out of a book that most people haven't read called The Silmarillion. And The Silmarillion predates The Fellowship of the Ring, and in there there's this creation story, and in the creation story, God is the great musician, and creation is sort of this orchestral piece. Well, it might be looking at God as the chief musician here and attributing the psalm, commending it to God himself as the chief musician it also says with stringed instruments we mentioned that for the psalms which are literally songs the jews would have sung that to musical accompaniment that was the norm and then it says to the according to the Sheminith, that means eight or eighth so it might mean an eight string instrument it might refer to the way it was tuned again we don't know and then lastly it says a psalm of david so with that introduction, we'll, we'll start in verses 1 through 3. This sort of sets the stage for all that follows. So read along with me here. Psalm 6, O Lord, Lord all caps meaning Yahweh or Jehovah, God's proper personal name. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me or show me favor, show me mercy. O Lord, for I'm, I'm languishing. And the word there... If you have a house plant and you don't water it for a while and it just sort of droops over, it lacks vitality, that's what this is like. I lack all strength and vitality, I'm drooping. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So you start, David's addressing God, it's about... I feel rebuked, I feel disciplined, we'll follow up on this in a minute, but he tells a little bit about what it feels like. So, my bones are troubled, my soul is troubled, I would say body and soul are all that I am. Who I am, I'm feeling the weight of this discipline. It's affecting all of me. It's not something on the back burner. I feel this body and soul, all that I am. That's what's going on for David. The words he uses there in verse 1, rebuke and discipline, those are the same words used of parents disciplining children. So those terms are the kind of interaction, benevolent interaction, a, a father might have with his children. So David's talking about he's being rebuked, he's being disciplined, and he's not so concerned about those words or God's rebuke and discipline in and of themselves because that would be benevolent. From God to David, that would be benevolent, not vindictive, the wounds of love, not those of an enemy. But David knows something, and he infers he sinned against God, the troubles he's experiencing are coming because of God's response to his sin, and he knows that God can act towards his covenant people in the Old Testament specifically, can act in ways that are characterized as anger, and wrath, anger, and wrath, the term anger we 've looked at already, an earlier message, it infers the nose. You guys know if uh, in the New Testament, if you talk about somebody who 's patient, long suffering, it means they have a long nose, and what it meant was it took a lot before their nose would get red from anger. You know the face registers what 's going on, right? They have a long nose, they can put up with something or someone for a long time. Well, anger has that same sense in the Hebrew. And you remember we talked before, if you've seen a horse especially that's just you know, just ready for a fight or ready to get up, their nostrils flare. Or if a person is in front of you and they're angry and their nostrils flare, that's the thought here. Guys, that term is used 27 times between Exodus and Deuteronomy regarding God's outlook, behavior, or warning to His covenant people Israel. God says to his covenant people, sometimes I'm going to interact with you and it will be in anger. We don't want to face God in his anger. God warned them and he said there's anger even among his covenant people. That word wrath means hot. You know, if we say someone's hot under the collar, again, red face, they're worked up. So David is saying, Lord, I know you're you're disciplining me. I know you're training me and I get that. But he says, what I don't want, you know, if a child, you probably never did this as a child, and I'm sure my children never did this, but you know, if a spanking was coming, it's like, can I avoid, can we get a soft spanking? You know, could you you make this easy, not hard? That's sort of the thought here. David knows he's going to be disciplined. That's not the issue. It's the manner in which the discipline comes. That's his concern. So in wrath, that, that thought of anger poured out, that term is used 13 times between Exodus and Deuteronomy, again, about God warning his people, I'm interacting with you in wrath, or I'm warning you about my wrath if you don't keep covenant faithfulness. So he knows I'm being disciplined by the Lord, it's the manner of the discipline that he's concerned with. Now, if you know, um, if you read both Exodus and Deuteronomy, God says of himself, I'm slow to anger, and I abound in loving kindness. And David certainly knows that, but he also knows God is willing to interact with his covenant people in the face of unfaithfulness and sin, in anger and in wrath. And that's what he's hoping to avoid. Now this is where, so this is a, this is a hermeneutic lesson briefly, okay? This is a how do we read and interpret the Bible lesson for just a minute. We'll talk about this again, by the way, in the future on Psalm 51. All Scripture is written for us. It's not all written to us. David is a Jew living under the old covenant. And that is is expressed in this song and lots of other songs, too, in ways and in manners that are not true for you and I today. So, you know, we want to say when we read Scripture, we say, what does it say? And then we say, what does it? Mean, and then we say, What do we do with it? How do we apply it? We don't want to just know what Scripture says and means. We want to do it. We want to be doers of the word. So, what does it mean for us? So, this psalm, this thought of being disciplined by God takes on a different take for us under the new covenant. Thank God that's true. So, David is disciplined by God under the old covenant, he's a subject under God as king. He's a subject under God as king. God is the great king. God as great king is in covenant with Israel and with David. Under that covenant, God threatened anger and wrath for unfaithfulness to the covenant, and David knows that. David is highly aware of that. For us today, we aren't under that covenant. Chris mentioned this in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Again, I highly commend those to you, online or here. We're under a new covenant. It's very different than God's treatment and interaction with people in the old covenant. We're not only God's subjects under King Jesus, but we're also children of God. You know, John 1, you know, anybody who believes in him, he gives the right. Not only we're not just saved, we're children of God. So God's interaction for us is different than that of David because he always interacts with us as his children, always his children. Listen to this from Hebrews 12. So we know, David knows, I'm being disciplined, I'm being reproved, I'm being trained. When you get to the New Testament and you look at what's God's attitude towards us under this sort of this general outline of training and discipline and reproof, what does that look like? Well, Hebrews 12 speaks to that. Hebrews 12 verses 7 through 11, the writer says this, it's for discipline, and discipline means broadly training. So if I say I discipline my children, I might think, uh, I might think that's, um, if retaliatory is not the best word, but you know they've done something wrong, so I discipline and I'm thinking of corrective action. Well, it certainly includes that, but it's more than that, that uh, parents train their children positively, negatively. It's the whole scope of what training looks like for them. So this isn't always negative, sort of punitive, corrective after the fact. It's for discipline or training that you endure. God is treating you as sons. So God's interaction with you when you're being trained up and disciplined is as a father to sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? By the way, you'll read this in the Proverbs as well. If you are left without discipline in which all, all children have participated, you're illegitimate children and you're not sons. In other words, because God is a faithful, loving Father, He disciplines, He trains His own. You can count on it. So fully that this writer says, if you've never been trained by God, He's not your Father. Because God always trains His children. Count on it. He says, earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. When our girls were little, we would tell them, Guys, the first time we've been parents, we're doing the best we can. That means we make mistakes. And we told them, those are your problems. Those aren't my problems. I'm being the best parent I know how to be. You grow up with problems, those are your problems. You know, you deal with that between you and the Lord. Hebrews is saying dads are doing their best job on earth. But they don't always get it right. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness So God's discipline, His training of His children for us under the new covenant, instituted by Jesus' blood, that is always benevolent. And it always has the same goal. The goal is always in God's training to share His holiness is another way we could say of conforming us, Romans 8, to the image of Christ. That's God's great work in every one of His children on the earth throughout the last two millennia. That's what God's doing in every one of us. Holiness making us more fully like Christ. That's the goal of all his training. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. This would even apply if you've been an athlete and you know what it's like to work through pain lifting weights or running or wrestling or whatever that would be, you realize, man, I face physical pain, but I know it has a benefit. I put up with the physical pain because the benefit that follows. Well, that's the same thing with this kind of training and discipline. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So under the new covenant, it's very clear it's not the same as David's. So guys, we might, we might do something we know we've sinned and we know god's given us some kind of a spanking or some kind of correction you can count on this it's never done in anger it's never done in wrath it's always done in love it's always part of god's process in making us more fully like christ sharing his holiness that's always the case can't be otherwise for the christian god's discipline is not a sign of anger wrath or rejection but rather a reminder of his love for us. Uh, Look at verse (laughs) 3. This is kind of pathetic, but touching. In the severity of what's going on with David, you know, he says like, I'm that dried out plant. I lack all vitality. My life is just drooping over. That last line, (laughs) he says, he starts to say, Oh Lord, and whatever's on his mind, it's just like he just stops. How long? I was going to say something, and all I can get out is, Lord, how long? How long is this going to last? When does this change? When does your hand of chastening let up so I can breathe again, so I can get on with life again? How long can I endure this? Have you guys ever felt this way, by the way? Good. I'm glad. I'm not alone. I didn't think I was. Uh, for years, when Kathy and I were, I would say, newly married, but it lasted a lot longer than that, we felt, and I've felt all along, I mean, we, we just felt like God has crazily blessed us. We've had so much good in life. One of the areas, though, that I was just challenged for literally decades was in our finances. Guys, we never missed a meal. Kids always had clothes on, had a roof over our head, paid our bills. You, you, you know what I mean? At that level, God gave us everything we needed. And pretty much nothing above that. And I've told people, you know, there's no sin in being poor, but there's nothing to commend it much either. I don't commend it to you. You know, but it was one of the ways God was training Mike. And what it went on so long that I would pray about it regularly. And in my mind, I didn't make it up, just in my mind as I'm thinking about it, I'm out in the ocean just away from shore and I'm in the water up to my nose. And I'm waiting, you know, I'm treading water. And all I could think of was, Lord, would you please drown me? Just kill me, take my life, end it. Or would you save me, pull me out? You know, would you do one or the other? Please, whatever you do, don't leave me here. You know, Lord, how long? How long can I do this thing? You know, how long? God did that for Mike about 20 years worth of how long how long so david feels it right we we can appreciate this if you felt anything like this one of the things that comes up on any kind of chronic suffering is lord how long you know when will it end when can i get some relief now i want to tell you God never wastes suffering. So if it's discipline that's straight from his hand, so to speak, or if it's simply the challenges of life, God never wastes suffering. And if we said from God's perspective, how does God know when the the lesson, the transformation, you know, the the pressures of life, how does God know when it's done the work that he was after, when when that development in Christlike holiness, how does God know... When that's been accomplished. And listen to this from Job 23, verse 10. Job suffered probably in ways, guys, none of us ever will. God willing, none of us ever will. But in that suffering, where Job can cry out also, Lord, how long? He says this He, God, knows the way that I take. God's here with me. He knows everything that's going on. He's not ignorant, he's fully aware of what's going on in my life. When he has tried me, when he's tested me, when this process is over, he says, I shall come out as gold. Now that's a description, we could say in the New Testament, of holiness and Christ-like transformation. How does God know when we've suffered enough discipline, training, corrective action, you name it, it's, it's when he sees there's gold. When the value of the lesson has been planted deep in us, That lesson, or that time frame for that lesson, is over. He knows that, and we don't. By the way, if you're a hunk of ore, and you can feel, do you want to go into the fire? So you're, you know, if you mine gold, and it's in ore, that means it's with all this other stuff, and you throw it in the smelting pot, if that ore could feel, it would say, let's turn the fire down. Let's get out of here, right? But the smelter knows I melt the whole thing down and the gold is separated out. And that's what God does for us often, most often, in suffering. So there's purpose in it and God never wastes that suffering. He's always with us in it as well. Scripture tells us that we're going to have troubles in this lifetime. Is that a newsflash to anyone? Job says we're born for trouble. Some of the troubles in life are simply because we live on the earth. We live on the earth, life on the earth, there's trouble. Some suffering will be due to unfair treatment by others. Think of persecuted Christians in China, you name it, the 1040 window, Colombia. I didn't do anything wrong. Others are afflicting me. I'm suffering for that reason. Some suffering is the fruit of our own sin. Oftentimes the case. But always at all times in all sufferings, our Father is training us for our good. That's not just Hebrews 12. It's also Romans 8, 28 through 30. God's using all things, suffering included, to make us more like Christ. So we can say with confidence, God never wastes suffering. When you're suffering in life, even though it doesn't feel good, we can always say at any stage of suffering, I may not understand it, but I have confidence that God is using this For my good. He cannot lie. That's his commitment to us. You can count on it. It's a given. What's my trial? If I was writing Psalm 6 myself, what would I say? How would I describe my suffering or what God's training to me feels like in a challenging sort of a way, in a heat sort of a way? The song doesn't tell us what David had done, but we know he has sinned in some fashion. God's reproving and disciplining him. And in the midst of that, his request isn't that God doesn't reprove him and train him. It's just that, Lord, would you not do it in anger and wrath? Look at verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. In death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, place of the grave, who will give you praise? Back in verse 2, David pleaded for God's mercy, his favor, his grace. Here in verse 4, he makes that plea based on God's own character. When he says, deliver me and save me, he says, for the sake of your steadfast love. In Hebrew, that's kesed. It's the description that's used second only to God is holy of God's nature and character in the Old Testament. So steadfast love, loyal love, faithful love, loving kindness, all English translations from that same Hebrew word, Kesed. this is the thing. When David makes his plea to God, it's not based on his own merit. He doesn't come and say, Lord, I'm a nice guy, would you take it easy on me? When he prays to God for relief, it's based on God's own character of loyal, faithful love. So he's not coming defending himself He's not coming and saying, Lord, based on some merit I bring, you should cut me some slack. He says, Lord, because you are so faithful, so loyal in love, for that reason, would you ease up? Would you answer my prayer for relief? We don't approach God on our own merit. We can only approach God as His mercy provides in the merit of the Lord Jesus. And today we pray in Jesus' name. And guys, hopefully we know Jesus' name is not magic. It's not a totem. You'll hear some people pray and they just throw in Jesus' name at the end of it. That's not what he's talking about. So we say when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying what Jesus would pray. We're praying for the same things Jesus would pray for. So we're not just praying our own will. So oftentimes we'll pray. So James says, you know, sometimes you pray and God doesn't answer I could pray for something in Jesus' name, and God says, No, you're praying for your own selfish desires. You through Jesus' name, it's like forging a check. That's not for you to sign. That's the thought here. So, praying in Jesus' name is praying not only what Jesus would pray, but it's in his merit. He tells us to pray in his name. Pray in my name, he says. But it means we're coming into the Father's presence in Christ's merit, but it also means we're praying the way Jesus would pray. So that's one thing. Jesus says in John 16, 23, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So praying in Jesus' name, for most of us, I think, is sort of a common concept. We may get it wrong sometimes, but we get. Jesus said, Come in my merit, pray in my name. Listen to this, though, from Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. You know, for the Jews, the high priest, he's the only guy in the whole nation that once a year gets to go into where God is in the Holy of Holies. You know, there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's the mercy seat. There's the Shekinah glory, this glowing ball above the mercy seat, which is God's presence. And the high priest goes in on the Day of Atonement once a year with blood not his own. He sprinkles it on the mercy seat. So the high priest is the one who goes in to the presence of God. And so in Hebrews, Hebrews is a great letter because it takes all that Judaism and it applies it to Jesus and shows Him as the fulfillment of all of that. But Scripture is clear. Jesus is a better high priest and He's gone into the very presence of God, not on earth, in heaven. He's at the Father's side in heaven as our high priest. He's not just sitting there in glory, which he is, at the right hand of the Father, glorified at the right hand of the Father, but he's also there as our high priest. And so he says this, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, challenges of life, whatever they look like, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Have you guys ever felt, this is sort of the Romans 7, have you ever felt, you know temptation is suffering even if you don't cave do you know temptation is suffering it's listed that way in romans 8 in fact a lot of romans 8 is about the the challenges of life on earth it's because we have a sinful nature and we have a new nature and when we feel the pull of temptation it sort of wars against our own new nature and the spirit of god within us and that is suffering that's what romans 8 in part talks about they're suffering because we're pulled by sin. Well, this text says Jesus has suffered in that way. He's been tempted. He knows what it looks like to be tempted, but he never caved. So he, can, he has sympathy for us in our temptations because he's been there. It goes on to say, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that good? Guys, this is both a privilege and it's a responsibility. This is actually a command. God says when you're in need, when you're feeling the heat, when life's beating you down, this is what you do. You come into my throne room in the merit of Jesus, and I'll I'll give you my mercy, and you'll get my grace. You'll get all the help you need, whatever's going on. So when you feel the heat or the pressure... The command and the privilege, David says, you know, Lord, based on your loving kindness, well, today, Jesus says, in my merit, in my name, you come before the Father to the throne of grace when you feel the need, and you'll get help, a privilege and a responsibility. I hope we're doing that. I hope that's the first thing we do. Look at verse 5 too. This strikes me, and in part because of the culture of the church in the West today, Uh, Verse 5, David makes his case by telling God, let's see, in death there's no remembrance of you, in Sheol who will give you praise. David's appealing to God to spare his life. Now again, we don't know the backstory. we'll see in the last few verses. The enemies of David are around, and it might be he literally fears for his life. Personal enemies, national enemies, armies, don't know. So that might be what's going on. But David is making a plea that God extend his life that this discipline or training doesn't end in his death. And he says, for this reason, he says, in Sheol, who will give you praise? That's stated as a question, but the inference is this. David says, Lord, don't don't cut me out of, of this early, because I want to stick around so that I can praise you. I want to stick around so I can worship you. And this goes all kinds of ways. Let me me just mention this. In David's day, God's blessing was seen. This is the language of the covenant. In David's day, blessing was to live a long life in the land of promise, surrounded by your family, worshiping Yahweh together. That was shalom. That was peace. That was joy. That was life as good as it got under the covenant. That's what David is after. David says, "I don't want to go to the grave." Now the Old Testament doesn't define a lot of these elements. It doesn't spell it out explicitly. But if you look at Luke 16 and the story Jesus talks about Lazarus and the rich man Lazarus, when he dies before the resurrection, goes to this place where he's not in heaven. There's no angels, God's not mentioned, but Abraham's there. That's a place of comfort, there's no problem. But across a chasm, there's a place of suffering where the unsaved rich man is. And so that's the place broadly of the grave. It's where the dead go. And David says, that's not where I want to be because I don't see you being praised corporately among your people in that setting. And David says, I want to stick around as long as I can because I want to be among your worshiping group. Now guys, let me ask you. So put that in perspective for our day. If the thing David wants to do, and think of Psalm 27, Lord willing, we'll get to that later. Remember there, David says, Lord, I just want to hang out with you. I just want to be where you're at. I just want to think about you, commune with you. That's all I want. And David says, extend my life so I can be among your worshipers. Does that speak to us today? Because guys, in the church culture we're part of today, many people will sing God's praises And talk about Jesus, but they aren't willing to call a local church their home, and assembling with the saints to worship God collectively is not a thing. It's not a priority. David says, I want to hang out because I want to be among your worshipers. I want to be there with others singing your praises. Lord, would you extend my life? Don't let this thing end in my death. Because I want to stick around, and I want to be in the Assembly of the Saints worshiping you. And I hope you guys have the same experience I routinely have. When we're here Sunday morning, and we're singing, and the front row is the best place for this. No distractions. Uh, I always feel like it's just a little bit of heaven. It's just a taste of what's to come. You know, if you read Revelation 4 and 5, you know, the churches, Revelation 1 through 3, you get these letters, and then they go to heaven and you got the father in 4 and you got the lamb of god in 5 and you got the elders and the angels and the saints of the age of the ages and they're all around the lord worshiping together that's our future and david says as much as i can i want to anticipate and feel that now and we should want the same thing we should want to gather with the saints to corporately declare god's praises in fact listen to this this is a prayer from paul romans 15:6 He says, live in harmony that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Live in harmony so you get along with each other. That's a good thing. But part of the fruit of that is that with one voice you're declaring God's praises. Spurgeon, I think you've got a quote on your study sheet. Sorrow for sin should be the keenest sorrow. David knows he sinned. Joy in the Lord should be the loftiest joy. That's worshiping together with God's people. Uh, Look at verse 6 and 7. Real briefly, this just simply goes along with more of his suffering. He says, I'm weary. Uh, My bed's just like my bed's floating from the tears. I'm crying a river, floating my bed. My couch is uh, drenched with my tears. My eye wastes away. The face and the eyes typically seen as sort of the reflection of the whole person. Uh, David simply has explained a little bit more of his suffering. Guys, if you... um, You know what this looks like for yourself. You know what suffering looks like for yourself, what it feels like. David's explained a little bit of that. You may feel others can't sort of enter in, and sometimes they can't. Sometimes others can't know what we're feeling in the moment. That's okay. Uh, Jesus always does. So we we know not only that God never wastes suffering, there's always purpose in it. We also know we never suffer alone. You know, Jesus said, I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And when you consider the one who says that, put this in perspective, Jesus suffered temptation without sinning. That's the verse we read. Jesus suffered rejection by men and God. That's Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. You suffer rejection. You're not alone. The one who's been ultimately rejected by heaven and by earth is the one that suffers with us. The suffering of physical assault... Jesus was beaten with fists and hands, crowned with thorns, flogged, skin ripped from his flesh and bones, crucified, pegs through the, through the wrists and through the feet. You get the picture. We haven't suffered like that. He knows what physical suffering is. Loneliness at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one's been more lonely than Jesus. All of which is to say, whatever that looks like or feels like for us, floating my bed on my tears, crying night and day. The one who has suffered more than we ever could is the one who's with us in our suffering. He knows what that feels like. He is sympathetic, not just as a priest in heaven, but the one who has suffered like we are, who is with us in our suffering, always. Jesus' suffering on the cross was to a depth and breadth we can't fathom. The one who intercedes for us, by the way, Jesus never gets prayer wrong. Jesus intercedes for you. The Holy Spirit never gets prayer wrong. The Spirit intercedes for you. Both of those are in Romans 8. The Son and the Spirit are interceding for us. I think their prayers are going to be answered. I think we can count on that. So the one who's, who's felt it, experienced it, is with us, and he's praying for us. That's a pretty good day. We have a high priest who knows intimately all our suffering, and he bears it with us. Look at verses 8 through 10. So David has approached heaven vertically, and now he turns horizontally to the enemies around him. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now we know David has foes, he has enemies here. What the interaction of those folks is with him, we don't know because we don't know the backstory. So it may be like those at Jesus' crucifixion, it may mean these are simply onlookers of his suffering, mocking him and giving him trouble, kicking him as it were when he's down. Think of the people that were castigating Jesus at his crucifixion, something like that, onlookers. Or they may be, most commentators think, that these are people who are the persecution in David's life, that the enemies and the foes are the ones who have caused his trouble. They're the direct agent, not just those who are onlooking. Whatever the case, look at verses 8 and 9, David says, so when he turns horizontally, he says, the Lord has heard me, the Lord has heard me, the Lord accepts my prayer. He knows God has heard him, and he knows, I assume by the Spirit, that his prayer for relief and deliverance is going to be answered, and going to be answered shortly. And so he's basically telling them, your day is over, and I'm back. God's answering my prayer, and it's time for you to leave. You've served God's purpose and role in my life. I've suffered. I've been corrected, chastened, disciplined. And that thing is ending, and you better get out while the time is for you to get out before I'm up and and at him again. So that's going to end. David knows the trial is ending, and God's restoring him. And because that's the case, the enemy should flee while he's free to do so. So guys, as we wind down, David has acknowledged his sin. He's prayed for relief based on God's character. He knows God is about to answer his plea and bring deliverance this song this even briefly going through this this song should encourage us no matter what the suffering in our life is to pray to god listen to this from dane ortland from his book gentle and lowly do not minimize your sin or excuse it away david doesn't we don't know the specifics but he says god i get it i sinned and this is your reproof for my sin so ortland says don't minimize your sin don't excuse it away Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. That's Hebrews. Let your own unrighteousness in all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous in all his brightness and sufficiency. It's just the honesty, Lord, this is who I am. This is what I've done. I get it. I I fall at your knees. Pleading your mercy because of Christ's merit. I don't cover anything up. I make no excuse. That's a good way to pray. And guys, when we do that, we go away with a cleansed conscience. We'll feel good again because God lifts his hand because he got it. We're restored. When trials arrive, when trouble's at the door, when suffering begins, whatever it's because don't go first to doctors or lawyers, friends or family, but Pray. So what are our trials today? What does that look like? So even if you're not in a trial today, you know, sometimes you'll be in a scripture, a text, and you say, well, that doesn't apply to me now. That's fine. But save it for a rainy day because it's going to come in later. So if you're not in, in any kind of suffering right now, that's fine. But remember this. God doesn't waste suffering. It's always for our good. We never suffer alone. Psalm 6 is a great reminder of that. The crucible of suffering isn't a place we choose. It feels as if we're being crushed. These are situations we feel we can't endure, and yet God is ultimately using our most difficult experience as a wise father, so the outcome for us is benefit, not loss, holiness, not harm. We want to call on God in the midst of our trials and sufferings, just as David did. We looked at Psalm 50 not long ago. Call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. That's a good day. Hey, stand if you would, stretch, take a deep breath. Worship team is going to come up. And instead of reading a scripture to close, we've been saying a prayer. These are simply prayers I write out of the psalm that we're in. If this reflects your heart, pray with me. But we always want to speak with intelligence. We don't want to simply assume things that aren't true. So hopefully you've got